It's really excellent that you brought up the Palestinian statelessness because this is a major difference between, uh, you know, the Nakba, the, the catastrophe, and you know, the partition of India and Pakistan. Which, at the end of the day, Pakistan got their country; they got the Muslim homeland. Uh, you know, if you were an Indian that moved to Pakistan, you weren't eternally stateless; you you became a Pakistani citizen. Uh, but if you're a Palestinian, you know, you you didn't expect to leave forever. And, uh, you know, you're effectively stateless because uh, you're kind of eternally under this refugee status. For example, the Jordanian government did offer citizenship to Palestinians, but Palestinians still maintained, you know, this distinct identity. And, you know, even if they were given citizenship, they still are largely a stateless people. And that, that is an important distinction. Uh, you know, between the refugees that were made in the partition who have largely been afforded citizenship in India and Pakistan. Hi, I'm Sakrat Singh from Zik Archive and welcome to the 37th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to the areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Salman Siddiqui, who is a student of international relations and global studies and who has a great interest in the history of partitions, especially on Punjab and Palestine. He is the author of the article... A Tale of Two Tragedies, A Historical Background and Comparative Analysis of the Nakba and the Partition. And today we will be discussing this article, which outlines both the timeline and common themes and differences that can be found throughout these two histories that ran parallel in the 20th century. We begin by introducing the British colonial regime, which occupied both territories, and end our discussion on the current state of affairs that followed after the independence movements. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode, from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years, with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now, they've published a new series of Gurmukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who is Salman Siddiqui? I am currently a law student at the University of Maryland School of Law, where I primarily specialize in international law. However, I did my undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin, where I specialized in uh, international relations and Middle Eastern studies. I should also note that I am an American of Pakistani descent, and this is the primary reason why I, I am interested in South Asian history. I grew up with these stories of the partition, uh, you know, from my grandparents and from people around me. And and it was something uh, that interested me, but I didn't really quite understand it until I went into undergrad and I actually started researching it. And because I was also a Middle Eastern studies major, uh, you know, I had to become quite familiar with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And when you started actually comparing the two, 
you realize there's quite a bit in common. And I was also quite fortunate uh, in being able to study at the University of Haifa in Israel uh, for about six months. And it was really when I was there that, uh, and I started you know, digging deeper into the history of uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, that I saw that, wow, there's a lot of similarities here between the formation of the Zionist movement and the foundation of Pakistan, you know, especially with this idea of a religious homeland for a downtrodden minority. That, that isn't to say that Muslims in India have nearly the same history as, you know, Jews, but, you know, the, the similarities were there, you know, in the 20th century, there was really only two countries that were founded on this idea of being a homeland for a religious minority, and that was Israel and Pakistan. So, you know, when I was there and I was able to really dig into the particulars of uh, these respective conflicts, uh, I really became interested in comparing the two, uh, which led to this paper, you know, the tale of two tragedies comparing the Nakba and the partition, uh, and another paper, which I may refer to, uh, which kind of compares the it's more of a comparison of the national movements between Zionism and uh, Pakistani nationalism. So if I start referring to the other paper, uh, you know, let me know uh, if I need to explain something a bit more, but uh, they're really heavily intertwined and it's a really fascinating research area. And when dealing with this comparative history, where do you begin in presenting your work? Do you go chronologically or is it more thematic? I would say that when comparing the two, there is kind of a point where they are most similar and then they start to diverge. So if you try to go really far back into the chronologies between the quit India movement and you know the formations of Zionism, they, they are quite different. However, you know, especially when you start seeing the rise of Pakistani nationalism, this idea of a separate Muslim homeland. And then, you know, you start to see that, you know, there really is this Zionist identity being formed in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, you start to see that they have very similar talking points. You know, this idea of that we're downtrodden minorities that are always going to be under the thumb of a majority. You know, in the case of India, you know, the, the Muslims who, you know, compared to the massive Hindu majority are a minority in India. Um, you know, they felt that, you know, if India were to become a dem democratic state, they'll always be under the thumb of, you know, the Hindu elect electorate. And they felt that, you know, no matter how hard they would try under a united framework, you know, in the absence of some kind of imperial referee, almost like the Mughal Empire or the British Empire, you know, there's just no way that United India can survive without, you know, Hindu majoritarianism. And when you look at, you know, when Zionism really started to take off, which despite popular belief is actually not that old of a movement, you know, Zionism really took form in the mid 19th century, uh, you know, with the writings of Theodor Herzl. And you see, you know, with the formation of Zionism, there's this similar narrative of Jews are always going to be, you know, under the thumb of a majority. You know, you can put any type of democratic pretext you want, but at the end of the day, you know, Jews are seen as this other outsider and, you know, they need a homeland for their own safety and, you know, to preserve their identity. So, uh, you know, you start seeing that there's these similarities in the history and, it, you know, it, you know, suddenly starts clicking that, you know, why they act in these ways. And, you know, 
when you start getting closer and closer to this inflection point of the 1947 partition of the 1948 Nakba, you start to see that when it comes to like, you know, how population transfers were handled or, you know, why, you know, there was this resort to ethnic cleansing, uh, you know, both of these, you know, national movements were inspired by kind of the same fears of, you know, being under the thumb of a majority and, you know, creating this homeland that's a majority of their people, you know, so that, you know, they can feel safe. That's why I started kind of comparing the two and what led to this paper. Before moving on, I thought it would be helpful to outline the colonial history of both Punjab and Palestine, just as a brief overview for context, maybe beginning with Punjab. Sure. So when looking at kind of, you know, the history prior to the partition, the British kind of took over India in the, you know, really 18th and 19th century. Um, They were ruling India as a united colony for about a century before uh, the partition, uh, where they were the successors of the, you know, storied Mughal Empire. And what's interesting about, you know, British India compared to modern India is that British India went, you know, all the way from the tip of India near Mussoorie, you know, up to the Nepali border, as far west as, you know, Sindh and Balochistan, and as far east as Burma. So it's this massive, you know, united colony. And, you know, in order to rule such a large and diverse area, you know, the, the British employed, you know, what we now call divide and conquer, you know, where they kind of kept people separate and, you know, strategically pitted different, you know, majorities and minorities against each other in order to keep colonial control. Now, this was fine when the British were in the peak of, well, as fine as you can call it. Uh, This worked for the British as long as they were able to fund keeping such a big colony together. But what you begin to see is that by the 20th century, uh, there's this substantial movement by the Indian people to make the British leave because the Indians felt that they could rule themselves. And the British, you know, as we're getting into the 20th century, they go through World War I, they go through the interwar period, they're financially not as capable of keeping such a large colony together. And so with stronger calls, you know, for the end of British rule combined with, you know, far fewer resources to keep their empire together, uh, you know, you start to see kind of, you know, a slow withdrawal of British power in the region. And, you know, particularly by the time we get to 1947, you know, the British are largely gone when they leave the task of, you know, quitting India, so to speak, to Lord Mountbatten. And also by this point, you know, the movements calling for the removal of the British were quite developed. And, you know, they were presenting a very strong front stating that they wanted an independent India. The issues that started to arise were, you know, primarily between this, you know, Hindu-Muslim, you know, divide. Uh, You know, even though the All India Movement was largely united, uh, what you saw was that, you know, the Congress Party, which was, you know, the majority of the Quit India Movement, was very strongly Hindu because they represented the majority of Indians. And Muslims felt that, you know, this fear was coming back that, 
we're going to be a downtrodden minority, you know, if, uh, you know, we let, you know, India be governed as a strong unitary state with, you know, Hindu majority. So you start to see like the All India Muslim League form, you know, with Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And, you know, despite popular beliefs, you know, the All India Muslim League really just wanted to see that uh, Muslims would have some form of, you know, self-rule. And it didn't have to mean that India would be divided. You know, initially they wanted a federation in which India would still be a united polity, but, you know, the Muslim majority areas would be granted enough autonomy to where they feel that, you know, they're not being, you know, oppressed by a Hindu majority. And this was really the only plan that made sense when you look back on it, because you see how intertwined you know, the Muslim populations are in India, you know, drawing a clean line is, is not particularly easy. And, uh, you know, trying to create separate countries was, you know, almost unfathomable. But, you know, as the All India Muslim League suffered electoral setbacks, you know, particularly in the late 30s and uh, mid 40s, you know, they realized this, you know, idea of a Indian federation just wasn't very popular, especially among Hindu, the Hindu majority. And so, you know, they felt, you know, without drastic action, this fear of a Hindu majority taking over uh, will come to reality, which is why by 1947, you know, you have Muhammad Ali Jinnah coming and saying, look, we want a separate Muslim state. And, you know, the British are placed in this very awkward position because they had maintained that they wanted to leave India intact. Um, but this is just not tenable anymore. And so that's kind of where we enter into, you know, the partition with the British trying to figure out how do we divide uh, India in a manner in which, you know, the Muslims don't feel like they're being oppressed, but at the same time, there's still an India left, you know, to the Indian people. No, thanks so much for that. And again, in a similar way, could you please outline the colonial history of Palestine with regards to the genesis of the Zionist movement? So the, you know, genesis of the Zionist movement, despite popular belief, uh, is not, you know, this primordial, you know, movement that's always been a part of the Jewish faith that we must return back to Jerusalem one day. Zionism is really a product of 19th century nation-state nationalism. You know, you saw it spreading throughout Europe you know, especially as, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, these massive old empires uh, that ruled over several ethnicities were starting to fall apart. Different ethnic groups wanted their own state. Zionist Jews felt that, you know, they needed their own homeland for their own safety. Uh, you know, the person who is credited as the founder of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, you know, he was actually a staunch what is called integrationist, which was the idea that, Jews should try as hard as they can to integrate into their respective European societies. And, you know, one day that society will accept them as one of their own. However, you know, even he realized, he started to realize that, you know, Jews are being viewed as this eternal outsider in Europe. You know, no matter how hard they tried to integrate into their respective societies, they're still seen as Jews first. You know, this particularly came to a head, for example, in France during the Dreyfus affair in the late 19th century where, you know, this, you know, beacon of Jewish integration, you know, this military officer in France was just completely humiliated 
on trumped up charges, you know, because he was Jewish. And, you know, you start to see this popular sentiment amongst Jews that, you know, we need to find a way to protect ourselves, you know, and form our own homeland, you know, for our ethnic religious group. So when the Zionist movement formed, they had to figure out, well, where is this homeland going to be? Because we're not going to be able to get a territory, you know, in Europe. And so, you know, initially they explored, you know, there was this fairly strong idea that we're going to make, you know, this Jewish homeland in what is now Uganda. You know, it's relatively safe, far flung from, you know, most of the, what was then developed world, you know, we'll be safe. We can, you know, do some farming. We'll be fine. Uh, You know, there was this idea of moving into South America and somewhere in Argentina, I think it was. Um, But really um, at the end of the day, the Zionist movement realized that the one place where Jews had been continuously habitating you know, for thousands of years had been in what was then Ottoman Palestine, uh, you know, particularly in Jerusalem. They evoked this uh, nostalgia for, you know, this historic Israel that existed, you know, thousands of years ago, where the Jews were in the majority and, you know, they, they had their own kingdom where they could call home. And so uh, the Zionist movement ended up deciding that, you know, this would be where we'll establish uh, our Jewish homeland. Uh, it will be, you know, in historic Israel, what was in Palestine. The primary issue is that, you know, Jews hadn't been a significant population for over a thousand years. And, you know, by that point in Ottoman Palestine, the majority of the population were Arabs, you know, particularly Arab farmers, uh, you know, who lived under the Fellahin system, you know, it was kind of a form of feudalism. And this would really come at a head when the Zionists started settling in Ottoman Palestine. Uh, You know, once again, despite popular belief, they weren't this hostile entity that came out of nowhere and started, you know, guns ablazing, taking land. You know, they were initially actually welcomed into Ottoman Palestine by the Ottoman authorities because they saw them as these highly educated European Jews are going to come in and develop this area. So the, you know, first Zionist settlers really start coming in in the 1880s. Um, But then this is also where you start to see the first tensions start to arise between the Palestinian Arabs and, you know, the Zionist settlers, primarily because once the Zionists bought up much of the land that wasn't used, they started buying absentee property, uh, which we'll kind of talk about more later on. But Essentially, these absentee landowners, they owned the land that the Fellahin farmed on, but, uh, you know, they didn't live in Palestine itself. They, they lived in Syria, they lived in Lebanon, they lived in Iraq. And, you know, the European Jews coming in from these European polities thought, you know, we'll just buy the land deeds and then we own the land. You know, there's, it's fairly cut and dry. But, you know, as the Fellahin started to, I mean, I don't want to evoke this idea of the Jews coming in and evicting the locals, but as, you know, the absentee landlords, you know, sold the land, uh, you know, tensions started to arise between the local Palestinian Arab population and these Zionist settlers. This was largely relatively subdued uh, until the 20th century, you know, Jewish settlers continued coming in from Europe, and by the 
by the 1910s, Jews are about 20% of the population of Palestine. Uh, however, World War I breaks out and, you know, the British are desperate. Well, not, they're not desperate, but the British want allies in the region. So, you know, in uh, 1915, they promise the Arabs that if you rebel against the Ottoman Empire, we'll give you this pan-Arab empire, which included Ottoman Palestine. And then in 1917, the British make the Balfour Declaration that, you know, we will help in creating this Jewish state in Palestine, uh, you know, because we believe that this is the eternal homeland of the Jews. And, you know, then the British make another agreement in secret with the French saying, you know, we're going to divide up this area between ourselves and the French. When, you know, by the time World War I concludes and the Ottoman Empire is eviscerated, the British ended up taking mandatory Palestine for themselves. And they managed to make both sides unhappy with their rule, uh, which seems to be in quite typical British fashion. Uh, the Zionists feel that the British government is not doing enough uh, to help uh, European settlers come into the region. Uh, and create a Jewish state, and the Palestinians feel that they are now under colonial rule from the British, and that the British are importing Europeans into the region in an effort to push them out. You know, this really came to a head by the 1930s uh, when the Palestinians orchestrated a rebellion to push the British out of uh, Palestine. Now, during the Civil War, the British and Jews were largely aligned with each other which meant that when the Palestinians lost, uh, this kind of further cemented this idea that, you know, the Jews are attached to these colonial oppressors and these Zionists themselves, you know, are colonists coming and taking our land uh, and forcing us out. And because of this, the British realized that if they wanted to keep control of this area, they had to give some kind of concession and that concession was known as the White Papers, in which they limited Jewish immigration into Palestine during the 1930s. Now, in classical British form, this made nobody happy. The Palestinians felt that not enough was done against you know, these new European settlers. And the late 1930s were not a particularly great time to limit immigration into Palestine, especially with the rise of fascism in Nazi Germany in particular. So now even Jews are turning against uh, the British. And so despite World War II being a relatively peaceful period in Ottoman or not in Palestine, by 1948, it becomes readily apparent that the British cannot hold on to Palestine. And they need to figure out an exit strategy. So they hand it over to the newly formed United Nations. Uh, the United Nations uh, makes a partition plan for Palestine, for which the Zionists almost immediately accept because any legitimization of Zionist holdings in Israel uh, would be a victory for them uh, because the primary assertion of the Palestinians is that they're not legitimately there. And of course, you know, for the Palestinians, it was the exact opposite. Any legitimization of Israel meant you are legitimizing, you know, these European colonists coming in and, you know, taking our land, uh, which culminated into the first Arab-Israeli war uh, in 1948, which is what leads to 
the Nakba. Well, thanks so much, Salman, for laying out a colonial historical overview of both Punjab and Palestine. I guess now we can begin to discuss some of the similarities between these two histories. Sure. So I suppose we can start with uh, the movements themselves, I guess, particularly between the All India Muslim League's uh, insistence on a Pakistani state and uh, the Zionists' um, desire for a Jewish homeland in Israel. I think, uh, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, um, you know, both of these movements uh, were driven by this fear that there are going to be a downtrodden minority and that unless they are able to form a majoritarian state made of their peoples, they will, you know, forever be oppressed. So that is a major commonality between both of these cases and uh, can also help explain why they had this desire to push out uh, people that, you know, were different to them. This can come up a bit in the differences this isn't to say that, you know, during the partition, it was only Muslims pushing out Sikhs and Hindus. You know, the, the, this violence happened significantly on both sides, uh, you know, with this idea that India is supposed to be this non-Muslim state and Pakistan is supposed to be this Muslim state. But when we're talking about Pakistani nationalism and Israeli nationalism, uh, when you see that there is this base fear that if we're not in the majority, we're going to be oppressed it, it helps contextualize why in both cases there was this strong desire to ethnically cleanse areas. And so, yeah, I think that would be kind of the first commonality between, you know, this kind of like Pakistani Muslim nationalism and Israeli Jewish nationalism. And then in terms of the actual events themselves, uh, you saw that they were both very significant population transfers. You know, about 40% of Palestine's uh, Arab population was pushed out during the Nakba. You know, 700,000 people. It's, it's not insignificant at all. And when you look at the partition, you know, there was millions upon millions of, you know, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs that were pushed across the respective borders in order to form these states. And it's just not very common, especially in the 20th century, to see these population shifts and for them to happen within one year of each other is quite remarkable. And so you, you can see those similarities between these population transfers and ethnic cleansing in order to form, you know, a majoritarian state that's based, you know, on this nation state nationalism. And also, I guess, um, the administration by the British of both of these regions is another major commonality. So, you know, the, the British were ruling both India and Palestine during this time, uh, which could also help explain some of the similarities and how poorly they were handled uh, by the uh, inflection points in 1947, 1948. You know, they, they were both a part of this ailing British empire that was struggling to keep itself together. And, uh, you, know, you know, this is particularly apparent with uh, the way uh, the British conducted themselves, for example, in Palestine when, when the 1948 war erupted, they remained largely a neutral party. Uh, you know, whenever the Jewish army, then called the Haganah, would enter an area, the British would leave, even if the Palestinians were relying on that British protection. Uh, you know, the British said, "This is not our fight. We're, you know, we're just going to retreat and leave when convenient for us." 
And you, you can almost see that kind of sentiment in India, if not more so, because the British had largely left India by 1947 uh, when they you know, gave the responsibility to Lord Mountbatten uh, and Cyril Radcliffe to withdraw whatever British interests were left in the region and draw the borders. Uh, it was incredibly rushed and really just reflected you know, how weak the British Empire was at this point. So you know, the British administration in both cases definitely aggravated uh, the respective events and were both kind of fueled by this dying British Empire that felt it just had to leave as quickly as possible, you know, damned be all any consequences that follow. What about the handling of property and such rights associated with it during the transfer of populations regarding, for example, absentee property? Right. So I suppose um, when talking about it in the uh, context of the partition, uh, when I referred to absentee property, uh, it's, it's a little bit different than I was referring to it during that kind of history of buying up absentee property uh, in Palestine. Because uh, that's not, it wasn't so much a feudal system where there was these landowners living far away and they bought up the property and evicted the locals. Both the partition and the Nakba generated a large amount of what was effectively abandoned property. Uh, you know, you have large population transfers happening very quickly, you know, people fleeing as fast as they could, so to speak. And this generated a large amount of abandoned property that both the states of India and Pakistan had to handle in the partition and uh, Israel handled, uh, you know, after the Nakba. But yeah, so both of these uh, events generated a large amount of abandoned property. And how each state handled it, uh, it was actually f uh, quite simul similar and quite uh, analogous to each other. Essentially, uh, in Israel, Pakistan, and India, uh, the respective states wanted to prioritize the property for their own, I should say, national populations. Although I, I will say that with caution in India, because there's still quite a substantial Muslim minority in India, uh, but for the sake of this paper, um, you know, the Indian government primarily focused on uh, giving absentee property to Sikh and Hindu refugees. Uh, Pakistan prioritized it for Muslim refugees. And Israel uh, heavily prioritized abandoned property for incoming Euro uh, Jewish Europeans. Uh, you know, particularly after World War II and the events of the Holocaust, you know, there was a significant uh, amount of Jews who felt that it wasn't safe in Europe anymore and that they had to move uh, to the newly formed state of Israel. Um, so all three of these countries were faced with this massive pressure of uh, incoming populations and a significant portion of abandoned property. Now, this kind of creates the perverse incentive for the states uh, to not return any uh, formerly abandoned property to their original owners. And actually, both India and Pakistan passed laws that effectively gave these properties to refugees. And if uh, you know, the original landowner were to somehow come up and want to get their land back, uh, they would be tied in enough bureaucratic red tape uh, that this would be impossible. And if they were to somehow get through this entire bureaucracy, they, the laws themselves gave a safety valve of, well, 
we're using this property to, you know, for example, rehabilitate refugees, you know, coming in to the area. Therefore, you know, you can't have your property back. And this is one of the few times where uh, both cases that, you know, had a direct effect on each other because when Israel was figuring out how they were going to handle uh, abandoned property, you know, especially with the fact that most Palestinians fled with the assumption that this would be temporary and that they would come back, uh, you know, you had a significant amount of Palestinians coming and saying, okay, war's over. I want to come back to my house. Uh, and the Israelis have this incentive to say, no, we don't want to give you your property back. We want to give it to these new uh, Jewish European settlers coming in uh, because they need housing. And so uh, they actually modeled their laws after India and Pakistan, uh, in which they created a system of you know, bureaucracy in which it would be almost impossible for a Palestinian to claim their land. And, you know, at the end of the day, even if they were able to get through this, the Israeli government can still veto and say, no, this property is being used to house, uh, you know, Jewish refugees. We, we don't want to give you your land back. Uh, and where they start to diverge is more so in the fact that by the, you know, 19, by the 1950s, you know, in India and Pakistan, it became pretty apparent that uh, most of the people that fled had fled permanently. And so, you know, both states, you know, when they kind of sequestered abandoned property, there, there wasn't a significant opposition to it once the borders had kind of hardened. Whereas in Palestine, most Palestinians fled uh, thinking that, you know, this would be temporary and that they would come back, uh, which, you know, number one, they weren't allowed to come back. And number two, uh, you know, they had no mechanism under the law to retrieve their property should they somehow make it back. And so that became a significant point of contention well into the future, whereas in India and Pakistan, by the 50s, this was largely resolved. That actually leads me to my next question regarding the remnants of such major events and policies with respect to land, which we continue to see today. For example, the idea of disputed regions which are under such heavy military occupation, such as Gaza or Kashmir, and also the continued wars throughout the 70s and beyond. What similarities can be drawn from all of this? Because of course, uh, these disputes and so on have not been settled since 1947 or 1948. Exactly. Um, that, that is a great question. Uh, and excellent point of comparison between the two because, and this is kind of going into the territory of my other paper about the national movements, uh, both of these events, the Nakba and uh, the partition, led to significant conflict following uh, these events. And it's, it's interesting that you bring in Kashmir because, you know, for Pakistan, Kashmir is kind of the lost province that was, you know, rightfully theirs, but, you know, was awarded to India, but then, you know, the, the local populations were Muslim and, you know, they, and, and, it, led, and it led to this quagmire uh, in which, you know, Pakistan invaded uh, in the first Indo-Pak war. And, you know, they took a small portion of Kashmir, uh, but it became this point of contention where Pakistan believes it belongs wholly to them and India believes it belongs wholly to them. Wholly to them. Uh, you can see almost similarly in the West Bank 
you know, following the first Arab-Israeli war, the Jordanians were able to successfully occupy much of the West Bank. Now, for the Israelis, it's not necessarily that the populations, you know, were so Jewish that they needed to join Israel. But they did feel that, you know, the West Bank uh, was part of this historical Israel and, you know, it should be restored to them. And eventually they fought a war later on, you know, 1967, and they did take the West Bank back. But it's under this, you know, heavy militarization in which, you know, they're slowly starting to have settlers uh, come into the region and, you know, formally integrated into Israel. So both of these events did lead to significant conflict, you know, after the fact, you know, these uh, population transfers and, you know, border drawings had significant impacts, you know, well beyond, you know, the late 40s and early 50s. And that is something important to note. And what are some of the key differences between these two histories? Where do they diverge? I stress this because one danger of drawing analogies is to forget that they are not identical histories and subsequently draw extrapolated conclusions which aren't you know, entirely so accurate. So one major difference that comes to my mind at least is that Palestinians remain stateless, whereas those in Punjab, many found citizenship in either Pakistan or India. Exactly. You know, and it's really excellent that you brought up the Palestinian statelessness because this is a major difference between, uh, you know, the Nakba, the the catastrophe and, you know, the partition of India and Pakistan, which at the end of the day, Pakistan got their country. They got the Muslim homeland. Uh, You know, if you were an Indian that moved to Pakistan, you weren't eternally stateless. You you became a Pakistani citizen. Uh, But if you're a Palestinian, you know, you, you didn't expect to leave forever. And, uh, you know, you're effectively stateless because uh, you're kind of eternally under this refugee status. For example, the Jordanian government did offer citizenship to Palestinians, but Palestinians still maintained, you know, this distinct identity. And, you know, even if they were given citizenship, they still are largely a stateless people. And that that is an important distinction, uh, you know, between the refugees that were made in the partition who have largely been afforded citizenship in India and Pakistan, you know, and the Palestinians who remained largely stateless. There's kind of these different tiers for, uh, you know, how the Palestinians fared after the uh, Nakba. You know, you, you could have been a Palestinian who fled and ended up in a refugee camp uh, where you are, you know, effectively eternally a refugee. You're not given, you know, particular citizenship rights by any state. And, you know, you're, you're hoping that you can eventually return back to your homeland and, you know, receive state protection there. Or you could be a Palestinian who either lived in or fled to the West Bank and Gaza after the Nakba, and you largely lived in these areas under Egyptian or Jordanian rule. But then after 1967, uh, you know, if you weren't able to flee abroad into the diaspora, you're under eternal military occupation. Uh, You are also not afforded any real citizenship protections. And, uh, you know, to this day, you know, many Palestinians live under this status. And then, you know, finally, you have the Palestinians who were afforded Israeli citizenship. Now, you know, many people try to argue that, you know, oh, you know, the, the, there's nothing, you know, to worry about here because, you know, these Palestinians are given, you know, equality under the law. And, you know, the Jewish, the, you know, the Israeli state 
uh, you know, affords them all rights. You know, they're given the right to vote and, you know, there's a Palestinian, you know, jointless party in the parliament. But you, you look back at it historically, they were also subjected to military rule. You know, even if they were supposed to be afforded Israeli citizenship, uh, you know, these people, you know, so we talked about with the absentee property, were denied property rights, which are something that a citizen should be entitled to, uh, you know, because the state prioritized the Jewish citizens over Palestinian citizens. And, you know, you, you still see this disparity to this day. Uh, you know, between Palestinians with Israeli citizenship and Jews with Israeli citizenship. I mean, you know, there's a fascinating article that really goes into how this is codified into Israeli law and, you know, how they've been upheld by their courts repeatedly. So, you know, yes, these people aren't technically stateless, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're accepted as full citizens of Israel either. Whereas when you really look at Pakistan and India, you know, the Hindus that fled into India were given Indian citizenship. It's not questioned. Sikh people that went onto the you know Indian side of Punjab, you know, they were given Indian citizenship. Yes, you know, India has a problematic history with uh, its Sikh populations, but they were largely given full protection under the state. You know, Muslims that fled into Pakistan, they they were given they were given these abandoned properties. They were given full you know state protection. They had all these rights realized that Palestinians just weren't afforded. And when you kind of start going into this one state versus two state solution, you know, this is a, I guess you could say that the partition is kind of the original two state solution where they were like, you know, we should give, you know, one state to the Muslims, one state to the rest of India and everything will work out. And we, we kind of see that sort of, but not really, you know, there's still a significant amount of conflict that arose between the two you know, Pakistan as a state, you know, largely hasn't fared particularly well historically. Um, you know, there there is kind of this talk of, you know, was the partition really necessary? You know, imagine what a united India could have been, you know, had this, you know, conflict not been there, had these states not been draining resources and fighting each other, and, you know, had this animosity not been bred, you know, what could have been? But then, you know, you look at what happened, uh, you know, in Israel, the Palestinians actually kind of ended up living the fear that the Muslims had in India, where, you know, they're going to, you know, if there's this majority above them, they'll never be afforded equal rights, even if they are supposed to be citizens equal under the law. And so, you know, it kind of shows that, you know, one state solution, two state solution, that they're, you know, both are very imperfect when you don't deal with these kind of structural issues beneath them. So that you know, there are key differences between these two. You know, it's not to say that they're completely analogous, but you know, you realize academically they they should be explored more analogously than they currently are. And I mean, you know, you can chalk that up to the fact that there aren't that many people that specialize in both South Asian and Middle Eastern history, and you know, really have a deep, nuanced understanding of both of these conflicts. But you know, I really think that this is a novel area of research that really merits more comparison. And just one final question, what was the role of the new successor states in affecting these population transfers and handling refugees? So this is something else that's kind of interesting uh, when comparing these two is actually the role of the newly formed states uh, and how they handle these population transfers. And I don't want to say directly aided in ethnic cleansing, but every state in these uh, events was culpable to some degree. 
uh, you know, you look at uh, the partition, you know, the British are completely absent in this. Um, you know, there, there's maybe a few British army units still left behind, but, you know, this is really the story of, uh, you know, the newly formed state of Pakistan and the newly formed state of India, you know, trying to figure out what they do with these, you know, newly demarcated borders that just had never existed before. You know, the the Royal Indian military and the Royal Pakistani military, which kind of became the Indian Pakistani army, you know, one of their first tasks uh, was actually, you know, kind of guarding these refugees uh, that were going across their respective borders because, you know, the amount of animosity that the partition had, you know, kicked up, you know, with these population transfers meant that even if you were agreeing to leave the area, you still weren't safe. You, know, you could still be attacked by, you know, these roving mobs of, you know, Hindus, Muslims, you know, even Sikhs that, you know, felt that you leaving is not enough. Like, you know, you have, you have to make sure that you can't come back. And, you know, these new states were kind of put in this perilous position where on the one hand, like, you know, especially in the case of Pakistan, like, you know, we can't be a thing if, you know, we don't have a majority Muslim population. But on the other hand, you know, at the same time, we can't be culpable for this mass violence that's, uh, you know, happening around us too. And that's kind of one of the first failures you see, particularly, you know, in the case of Punjab with the violence that erupted in, you know, Lahore and Amritsar and, you know, these armed bands of, you know, mobs going around killing and looting and making sure that people can't leave. And that's one of the first failures you see of these new Indian Pakistani states. And it may be fair to say that that's too much to expect, you know, when they were literally, you know, formed out of nowhere. But, you know, that is important in understanding, you know, particularly the narratives and the partition that it wasn't just like this primordial conflict that came out of nowhere. You know, there were state actors in this that, you know, were put in a tough position where on the one hand, you know, they benefited from these population transfers, but on the other hand, you know, the violence that ensued was also not sustainable. And, you know, when you're looking at, in the case of the Israel-Palestinian conflict, unfortunately for the Palestinians, they didn't really have a chance to form, you know, their own state. And, you know, the, their national movement was really co-opted by the surrounding Arab states who kind of spoke on their behalf. And they were also into these newly formed states that felt that, you know, going through, you know, the United Nations or any sort of peaceful means was, un, you know, unsatisfactory also directly led to conflict. And because these Arab states were so weak, ununified, uh, you know, incompetent, they further ex exacerbated, you know, the existing conflicts in the area. And, you know, that directly led to the Nakba. I mean, ethnic cleansing that occurred during the 1948 Arab-Israeli war would have really happened had the war not been there in the first place. Uh, you know, if there was some kind of peaceful transition that could have been done, that that never came to be because, the again, these newly formed states entered in and they, they just simply weren't equipped to handle it properly. And then when you look at the newly formed Israeli government, uh, you know, just like the Indian and Pakistani governments, they're put in this position where, you know, they want to prioritize their own citizens ahead of anyone else. And it really comes at the expense of these people who, you know, like in Palestine had been living there for hundreds of years and have, you know, just as legitimate a claim as any European settler does. 
uh, you know, especially in front of Israeli law, and they have to kind of figure out how do we get out of this contradictory position where we're supposed to be uh, affording equal protections to everyone, but really we just want to make sure that this Jewish state can form, and which is not possible if we have a significant Palestinian population. And what we are witnessing in Sheikh Jarrah today, is that an extension of this absentee property history? Yeah, you know, it, it really is interesting how the past influences the present. Uh, you know, with the evictions that are currently happening right now, uh, the actual origins of what happened was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when the early Zionists came in, they were buying uh, these land titles from uh, landowners that didn't live in Palestine. You know, so they bought these titles, you know, free and clear. And this area belonged uh, to Jewish uh, landowners who had, you know, effectively, you know, evicted the whatever Palestinian population was there, even though most of that area wasn't particularly well developed. Uh, and it was actually housing, you know, Jewish people. But when the Jordanians took the West Bank in 1948, uh, the Jews, you know, fled with the uh, Israeli army. And, uh, you know, in an effort to alleviate their refugee crisis, uh, they housed outside Palestinian refugees. Now, when the Israelis took back the West Bank, you know, those same landowners, Jewish landowners came back and they said, all right, we want our land back. And the Israeli government essentially said that, like, well, there's Palestinians living there. And, you know, this is a very complicated issue now. And so the Palestinians were largely allowed to reside there so long as they paid, you know, a nominal rent, you know, to whoever the Jewish landowner was. You know, now you fast forward to today, you know, some of those Palestinian families, you know, they, they've defaulted on these, you know, payments that they were giving to these Jewish landowners. And so now they are saying that, you know, we want to start eviction proceedings. But of course, you can't do that when, once again, you know, you're kind of making them double refugees. Uh, you know, they were refugees and they were given this land and then, you know, you're evicting them. So this was a major flashpoint uh, when, uh, you know, these evictions start, you know, you're, you're evicting Palestinians. This is, this is, you know, once again, it looks like you're kind of pushing them out of Palestine in continuation of, you know, the Nakba. And this actually led to, you know, several court cases that have eventually went up to the Israeli Supreme Court, which despite, you know, them being in the courts, uh, the Israeli government is really pressuring these evictions to go through. But now we're, that we're sitting at this critical juncture where this entire conflict erupted because of the evictions, uh, the Israeli Supreme Court is now trying to weigh in on you know, should we go back and say, yes, you know, this is absentee property that was purchased by Jews legitimately, or should we, you know, try not to exacerbate the current conflict? And, uh, you know, as a result of that, the Israeli Supreme Court gave a stay on evictions, which has sort of been followed. And, you know, the Attorney General of Israel is now contemplating dropping the case entirely and not letting any of the evictions proceed, you know, despite Israeli national government pressure to go through with the evictions. Uh, it really just kind of goes back to this idea that, uh, you know, if you're Palestinian and you lost your land, you have no legal recourse to get your land back. But 
you know, if you're Jewish and the same thing happens to you, you can go back into the courts and, you know, you can just evict, uh, you know, these, you know, refugees at will. You know, it kind of just highlights these disparities between the Palestinians and Israelis. So it's really interesting, you know, this idea of absentee landlords and, you know, the, this absentee purchasing of land, it's, it's not, you know, distantly in the past. It, it affects, you know, the modern day politics. And just again on the comparison, is it fair to say that this is quite similar with what had happened recently in Kashmir with the auctioning of Kashmiri land? Or, you know, is that not so analogous? That's a very interesting question. I, I'm not as familiar with the auctioning of Kashmiri land. I, from what I understand of what happened in Kashmir, um, you know, after the 1980s uh, insurgencies uh, in Kashmir, the Indian government had halted, you know, new settlement into Kashmir uh, in an effort to sort of placate the Kashmiri population. And recently they've started to uh, allow for outside immigration into Kashmir, which is kind of bringing these fears that the Indian government is trying to turn Kashmir into a Hindu-majority province, which would solidify it as you know a part of India instead of being a part of Pakistan or its own independent country. Thank you so much, Salman, for coming on and sharing your knowledge about the two parallel histories of partition in both Punjab and Palestine. I think it's important to have a good overview of other territories that were divided by the British Empire so that we can gain a wider understanding of shared experiences and traumas inflicted upon the local communities. There are many other partitions that took place around the world, such as Ireland or Cyprus, which also looked at the population transfers according to ethnic lines, which I hope to explore in a separate podcast in the near future. So thank you again by beginning this series of partition-related episodes with one on the similarities and differences with the Palestinian story. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you.